that passion demonstrated in the Lord Jesus there on the cross for us. We give you thanks, we praise you, we worship you this morning. Meet with us now, we pray, as we study your word together. Bless us, we pray, and challenge us and meet with us and change us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks uh, to the band for leading us in worship, and of course we'll continue worshipping later as we take communion together after the sermon. I wonder if you know who the person is in this slide. It does strike a, a kind of resemblance to Keith. Well, it's not Keith. He's, he's out of the room, so I can say that safely. You probably have no idea who this person is. I'll give you a clue. His name is Greg Clark. You're probably still none the wiser. Actually, he's the right honourable Greg Clark, and he's the Secretary of State for Communities. Did you know we had a Secretary of State for Communities? No, there you go. Things you're learning this morning at church. The issue of community and community life is considered so important, we actually have a government minister devoted to this task, whose job it is to focus on the very issue of trying to make communities better in the UK. Community life is talked about by politicians and by the media, and the reason it's such a hot topic is because, in general, the communities that exist in our nation, and in fact all over the world, don't function as they should, or they don't behave in the way that we would like them to. We, we hear people talking about community breakdown. We hear people talking about misfunctioning communities or community isolation, communities not working together. And all of this is because of a really very obvious problem. And the experts will blame it on all sorts of things. They'll come up with all sorts of clever titles and, and, and reasons. But the real cause, the root cause of the problems in our communities is sin. Sin has made our communities rotten. It is sin that causes breakdown in relationships between people and so eventually that spills over and communities don't function as they should. But you know, God has a plan. And one day, those who've trusted in him will live forever in a perfect community. A community without sin. A community where there's no sin, no dying, no pain, no suffering. A community which is sinless. But to prepare us for that time and to impact the dysfunctioning communities all around us, God has created a new community, which is a foretaste of this eternal community. And this new community is right here on earth. It's a community where the people in it are not identified by their race or by their sex or by their uh, position in, in, in kind of the, the socioeconomic standing in the world or by their wealth or by their education or anything else. It's a community that should be radical, that should be unique, a community that should stand out as being completely different from the kind of communities that exist all around us. And that community is the church. And the church is simply all those who throughout time and right across the world have surrendered their lives to Jesus and would claim and profess Jesus to be their Lord and their Saviour. It's a worldwide community. But there are also local communities. There's the, the universal church, but there's also local churches, churches like this one, Local communities of Christians gathered under the name of Jesus, such as this one here at Regent. And the Bible uses a picture often to uh, teach us about the church, and it uses the picture of a body with Jesus as the head and all the different people that are in it as parts of that body, all coming together to form one body. But although the church should be different to the failing communities that are all around us, and it should be a model for what God intended community to look like in the first place. The church isn't a perfect community, is it? It's not a perfect society. We all know that. Local churches like this one are full of people like me, who have, yes, a new nature given to them by the Holy Spirit when they trusted in Jesus, but also someone like me who still struggles with the flesh, still struggles with our old nature, and doesn't live 
as we should do and, and doesn't always behave as I should do. And we're full, every church is full of people like that. that. That's all of us, isn't it? We have a new nature, but we also still struggle with the old nature. And that causes us problems because at the heart of the old nature is something the Bible calls sin. Living our way instead of God's way. And so we've got this problem. We have this prototype, this foretaste of what the eternal, amazing, sinless community will be like forever. Right here, this is it. This is the prototype. This is the foretaste of this eternal community, a community without sin. But although we have the new nature, which is a foretaste of that eternal situation, we still, sadly, as we all know, struggle with our old natures. And we've looked at that, haven't we, over these last few weeks going through Colossians, the fact that we're told to put off our old nature and clothe ourselves with a new nature, to consider the old nature dead. But we know that that's a daily choice we need to make. So what should an authentic Christian community look like? And, and what steps does God expect us to take? Because he, he, he gives us certain expectations, or he has certain expectations on us to help create that and to maintain it. So we're going to read from Colossians 3. Now Keith read last week the first... Um, 11 verses and spoke from those and we're going to re-read those verses and then continue right the way down to verse 17. So I'm going to read those verses from last week, just a bit of context because it's all one kind of sweep. So we're going to read from Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 17. And remember Paul is he's in prison at this point in Rome and he's writing to this church in Colossae over in what is now modern day Turkey and he says this, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We said we've been working our way through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, and Keith spoke to us last week on verses 1 to 11. And there's a big change, and Keith talked about this, that takes place when a person is born again. When we trust in Jesus, we become new people, and we receive this new nature from God as the Holy Spirit comes to live within our hearts. And as Keith spoke last week about how our lives should be changed and different as we've trusted in Jesus, and that should mean that our, our church communities should stand out as being different, should stand out as a, as a shining example of what real community is all about. 
if the Christian community, if the local church that we belong to is to look the way that God intends it to look, if it's to be an authentic Christian community, then we need to do certain things. We need to take action in our own lives. And one of the things we saw last week, and we're going to continue to see today, is that we can't carry on living the way that we used to live. Our old nature needs to go. If we carry on living the way we used to, then our community won't look any different from the failing communities all around us. The things that are driven by sin and mark our old nature cannot be given, Paul says, space in a local church. He says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? Put your old way of life to death, says Paul. Don't, don't play around with it. Don't, don't give it a bit of space. Put it to death. Be really uh, harsh with it. And he gives us some examples. Sexual morality, uh, greed, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. These things, Paul says, have no place in the life of a follower of Jesus and therefore no place in the life of a local church. And he says in verse 8, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. And he goes on to list a variety of different kind of behaviours that we need to get rid of. Because if we carry on living that way, then at best our, our, our church family won't function properly and at worst it will be damaged, be scarred and its reputation ruined. So firstly this morning, we need to make that daily choice to put to death our old nature. Write that on your outline if you want to use your outline this morning. It's there for you if you find it helpful. We need to make that daily choice to put to death our old nature. It's not something that God does for us. We need to choose to do that every day, to have that daily choice of saying, my old way of living, I'm not going to be defined that way. I'm going to be defined by a new way of living. For a while, I wore a uniform at work, and those of us who wore uniform at work would leave our uniform in our lockers, or that's what we were meant to do with them, so that when we came into work, our uniform would be there, we'd take our normal day clothes off, we'd put our uniform on, and then we'd go out to do our jobs. We needed to put on different clothes. Our uniform gave us the authority to do the job that we were doing. And God wants us to do that in our Christian life. Paul here uses the picture of clothes, this kind of imagery of clothes, to represent two ways of living. The old clothes stand for the way that we used to live, and the new clothes stand for the new way of living. And Paul is saying that these old clothes that we used to be defined by and, and, and noted for, they've got to go. And in their place, we've got to put on new clothes. And the new clothes stand for the new way that we're to live. We've got to put on those new clothes. We've got to choose to live a new and a different way. So where do we, get, where do we go to? Where do we get inspired? Where do we see what this new way of living looks like? Well, verse 2 says this, Set your minds on things above and not on things below, not on earthly things. If we've been born again and we have, therefore have the Holy Spirit within us, we will be different. It's impossible not to be. But God doesn't do it all for us. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if God just changed us completely and removed the flesh, but we still battle with this every day. He wants us to choose to make that choice every day, to live differently, and he gives us this wonderful example to follow. If we look to Jesus, Paul says, if we focus on things above, on things in heaven, if we, if we are inspired and driven by the standards of the Bible, then we will see what our new clothes are meant to look like. We'll see what it looks like to live in this new life. Verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with, and then he goes on to list a whole number of behavioural patterns that we have to choose to dress ourselves with. We saw a few weeks ago how the Bible describes us as having been spiritually circumcised. In other words, when we trusted in Jesus, he, he removed our old way of life, he removed the spiritual flesh from us, and he gave us a new identity. 
But we have to make that daily choice not to go back and, and put our old clothes on. That's our default. We just find ourselves, or I certainly do, maybe I'm the only one, but you, know, you find yourself drifting back and, and, and putting on the old way. And it's that daily choice of saying, no, God has given me a new nature, a new identity, and daily I'm going to make that choice to live in the good of this new identity and not drift back and put those old clothes on. Maybe you have, when you come in from work, some kind of comfy clothes that you like to put on. I know Paul has some comfy clothes that he likes to wear when he comes in from work. Maybe you have a, a kind of, you know, whatever you wear, just kind of those easy clothes. And, and that's often what we do, isn't it, as Christians? We put on those comfy old clothes instead of wearing the new clothes that Jesus has given to us. Paul says in Romans 13, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This isn't on your outline, but up there on the screen. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Those thoughts of the flesh will be in our minds all the time. And we've got to make that choice. The battle starts in our head. The battle starts in our brain. Will I allow those thoughts room? Will I give it headroom? Paul says, don't think about how, don't even think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got to get rid of the old clothes. We've got to put on the new clothes. So write that down. We need to make the daily choice not only to, to not go back, but to actually clothe ourselves with Christ-like qualities. It's, it's that whole concept of starting each day and saying, Lord, here I am. Fill me, clothe me, help me to live your way to live in the good of my new identity and not in my old identity. The desire to do that comes from the Holy Spirit within us. But the choice to live and act God's way is ours. God won't force us into that. He gives us the desire because the Holy Spirit's within us. And we don't do it to try and earn God's love. We don't do it to keep a list of rules. Keith pointed out last week that the the, the NIV translation, which perhaps many of you have, is really unhelpful here, not because of the translation, but because the uh, translators put in some little headings, which are not in the Bible. They've just put them in there for ease, and they're helpful generally. But in Colossians 3, it says rules for holy living, which completely misses the point of what Colossians is about. It's not about rules. It's about uh, living Jesus' way in response to, to what God has done for us. It's about responding to God's love. So we don't do these things. We don't make this daily choice to live God's way, to try and earn God's love, or because we're keeping some list of rules. We do it out of a response to who God is, to what Jesus has done for us. It's all about God's grace. We saw that in in chapter 1 particularly, didn't we? How Paul talked about understanding God's grace and how understanding God's grace then should, should motivate us and spur us on to live God's way, not keeping a list of rules, not trying to earn God's love, but responding to the fact that God has given us his love. In Jesus, Look at what, verse, uh, what Paul says in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with. We, we make this choice because we are God's chosen people. Because we're a people who've been made holy through trusting in Jesus and because we're dearly loved by God. Those are three amazing facts, aren't they? That we have been chosen. That we have been made holy. That we are dearly loved. And because of that, Paul is saying... Live God's way. Clothe yourselves with Jesus because of what God has done for you, because of how he views you. And so because of what God has done for us, our response should be to live God's way and clothe ourselves with this new nature. And when we choose to clothe ourselves with a new nature, then our church family will be impacted. It'll be much more, a much more authentic Christian family. It will look like the church should look like, or it'll be much closer to how the church should look like. 
And Paul goes on to describe what clothing ourselves with Christ looks like in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul says we need to have compassion. We need to have compassion for people around us, both inside and outside our church, when they suffer, that we identify with them and feel their pain and feel their hurt. Paul talks elsewhere, doesn't he, about weeping with those who weep. We need to have compassion for people. We need to be kind and we need to be humble. You know, humility definitely doesn't come naturally, does it? We all like to put number one first. I want my way. That's how we're wired. That's, that's the flesh. That's the old nature. I want to do things my way. We all like to put number one first. We all want to naturally promote our own causes above everybody else's causes. We want to promote our own self-interest above the interests of others. Paul says in Philippians 2, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And if we only look to our own interests in a local church, then it will irritate other people, it will hurt people, and if we only look for our, inter- our own interest, then any sense of community will soon disappear when we start just doing things our way. And that's what happens in the world around us. And Paul is saying we're to look different. Our community, the way we function as a church family, should look different because humility should be right there at the center of it. Rick Warren helpfully says that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. is isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. God doesn't want his church full of people with inferiority complexes. We should recognize our own strengths and abilities and all the rest of it. That, that, that's biblical. What it's saying is, despite who and what I am and what I like and all the rest of it, I will choose to think of what I want a little bit less and I will put the needs of others first. The attitude of heart that says, in the interest and well-being of others, I will sacrifice what I want and I will put others' needs ahead of my own even if that's painful for me to do. We're told, Paul says, to, to clothe ourselves with gentleness. That's not about being a wimp. It, it, it doesn't, but what it means is that we're not arrogant, we're not brash with people. And the mark of a gentle person is that, 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 that others are not afraid of opening up their lives to us and seeking our input into their lives. No, nobody wants to interact with a, a brash, harsh person, do they? But it's a pleasure, isn't it? And we can all think of people that we think, this person is just a pleasure to interact with because they're gentle and gracious. Paul says to clothe ourselves with patience, to be patient with people around us who are different, and everybody around us is different. There is nobody in this room like me, and you're all saying, thank goodness for that. But there's nobody like you either. Each one of us are completely different. And so we're told to be patient with people who are different to us, to treat people with gentleness and care, even though they might might naturally provoke our temper. The person who exhibited this kind of behavior more than anybody, of course, was Jesus. He's our example and he's our aim. We can never be Jesus. But we can clothe ourselves, choose to clothe ourselves with Christ-like qualities. And Paul goes on to develop this theme in verse 13. He says, bear with each other. Bear with one another. You know, when a person is born again, they change. If they haven't changed, they haven't been born again. That's very simple. But we don't become perfect overnight. In fact, we never become perfect until we see Jesus John says in 1 John, when we see him, we shall be like him. But until then, we're in this process of what the Bible calls sanctification. It's, a, it's this process of being changed and becoming increasingly more like Jesus. So although we might change, we still do lots of things we shouldn't. 
We still have lots of sinful ways of behaving. And there's lots of things that we do that aren't sinful. They're just plain annoying to each other because we're all different and we all like different things and we all do things differently and we have different kind of personalities. And when you put a, pe- a group of people in a room, then they're going to need to learn to bear with each other because sooner or later, when you put more than one person in a room, sparks are going to fly. If you want to see a great example of this in action, of somebody bearing with each other, then look at Ryan as he manages to put up with me week after day after day, week after week in an office. The two of us in close proximity, five days a week. Bearing with, it, bearing with one another. You can ask Ryan how pleasant or, unwise that, or otherwise that is. But you put people in the room together and you have more than one person and sooner or later there's a clash of interests, a clash of personalities, or different ways of doing things, different ways of behaving. It's not necessarily sinful. Sometimes sin is involved, but it may not be sin. It's just different people. And we need to learn to bear with each other because sooner or later sparks will fly. That's the reality of life. That's why the New Testament is full of teaching about loving one another. 52 times Paul says, bear with one another, love each other, forgive one another. 52 one another's in the New Testament. Now Paul isn't saying that we should gloss over sin. Not at all. If somebody is behaving sinfully, that needs challenging, and we'll look at that in a minute. But it is calling us to be gracious with one another, to treat people in a way they don't deserve to be treated. To quote Rick Warren again, it's people to, who to us are EGRs, extra grace required. And, and I'm sure you can all think of somebody, maybe that's me for you, but somebody who you just think, this person just winds me up and I struggle to get through an hour without, this per- without me wanting to punch them because they just do my head in. And we can all think of people like that, can't we? Who we need to show extra grace to, people who we just have to have that little bit extra grace with somebody who perhaps naturally we would not associate with, but because we're brought together through the cross, through the gospel, we find ourselves as a family together, people that we would not choose to be with. Most of us here this morning would never have come across each other unless it was for Jesus. We wouldn't be here. We would have nothing to do with one another because we wouldn't have found each other. But through the gospel, we find ourselves as part of a family. We didn't choose each other. We're here and we've got to learn to get along together so that this community shines out as an example of what the heavenly community will look like to the world around us, which is full of dysfunctioning communities. It's a willingness to work with people even though they irritate us or wind us up. And it's a decision not to pick on every fault or error. It's grace in action. So write this down. We need to tolerate people who are different. Not tolerating sin, but tolerating people who are different to me. But, you know, God wants more than just a grudging acceptance of people that we find difficult. Look at verse 13. Paul says, Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. An unforgiving Christian, an unforgiving Christian is a contradiction in terms. The reason I'm a Christian is because I've been forgiven. That's one of the definitions of a Christian. And I have been forgiven by God way more than I am ever going to need to, be, to, to forgive anybody here or anywhere else in the world. No matter how much someone else might sin against me and hurt me, that is nothing compared to how I've sinned against God. God has forgiven me, therefore I have no right anymore to, know, to, to withhold forgiveness from anybody else. The reality of, a, of, of life in a Christian community, a local church, is that people will hurt us intentionally or mostly unintentionally. It's going to happen because until we get to heaven, we will still sin. And even if we're not sinning, there can be misunderstandings and hurts and things that happen. 
And we have a choice. We can either hold on to that hurt and that disappointment and allow, us to, uh, allow it to make us bitter and people who hold on to forgiveness become really unpleasant people to be around. They become bitter, they become twisted, they become nasty people. And we have a choice. We can hold on to that hurt and that disappointment and allow it to eat us up inside and make us into those bitter, hard people and in the process destroy relationships and making us hard to be around. Or we can choose to forgive. Sometimes that, you know, we think that if I refuse to forgive this person over here, it will hurt them. Somehow that will make me feel better. Actually, it's the reverse usually. What happens is I'm the one who's who's damaged by that refusal to forgive. That other person may not even know they've hurt me. They may be blissfully unaware of it. And the only person that's being damaged here is me because I'm holding on to this, 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 this pain and this, and this hurt. The, the person that's most damaged by a refusal to forgive is ourselves. When, on the other hand, we choose to forgive, you know, it, it's, it's like removing a sharp hook from within our body. That other person has a hook into us, even if they don't realize us. Uh, realize it. And when we choose to remove that hook, it sets us free. We need to forgive others when they hurt us, and we need to do that out of reverence for Jesus. And we need to do it for the sake of our church community, but we need to do it for the sake of ourselves, for our own sanity, for our own mental well-being, for our own spiritual well-being. Forgiveness is so essential for ourselves, for our church life, and for Jesus. One of the problems we often have with forgiveness is because we misunderstand what forgiveness is. And we think that forgiveness means, well, I now, have to, I now have to accept what this person has done to me if they've done something horrendous to me, or I have to embrace them. Or Forgiveness isn't necessarily what we always think it is. Let me just briefly look at a few points about what forgiveness isn't. Forgiveness, firstly, is not removing the consequences of sin. It's not allowing someone to escape the consequences of their acts. If somebody... That, sins against you in a way that's illegal, that person needs to face the, the full wrath of the law. It isn't approving of what has been done. Forgiveness is not about approving of when someone sins against you. Forgiveness isn't excusing or tolerating sin. It's not about saying, oh, it's okay, what you did didn't matter. Because often what that person did, did matter. It isn't pretending that there's no hurt. It's, it's, not, it's not about saying, it's okay, you didn't hurt me, when really we were hurt. It's not reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two people. Forgiveness is removing that hook from ourselves, even if the other person knows nothing about it. The other person may be dead. And forgiveness isn't forgetting. The forgive and forget, that's not in the Bible. God doesn't forget. God chooses to remember our sins no more, but God couldn't forget if he tried. He's God. He sees the past, future, and present all in one immediate thing because he's God and he lives outside of time. So forgiveness isn't forgetting. Telling somebody who has been brutally treated by another person to forget that is, quite frankly, deeply insulting. They are not going to forget that. What they can do is choose to forgive what has happened to them, and that's a very different thing. Forgiveness is a choice that we make, not to dwell on the past or the offending act, and not to make it the center of our focus, so that we choose not to seek revenge, we choose not to punish the offenders ourselves by our own responses to them. We choose to put the past in the past so that our current behavior isn't driven by something that has happened to us in the past. So write this down. Forgiveness is essential for a healthy church community. Forgiveness is so utterly essential. So many churches that are not seeing blessing or are seeing struggles are, is, is, 
I believe is down to a root cause that deep under the surface there are people who have not spoken to each other for a year or 10 years or 20 years. People who are harboring bitterness and grudges and are refusing to forgive. And as we surrender to Jesus day by day, living lives of love, as Paul says, then this will bring peace into, the, into our lives, which will then flow out into our church family. Paul says in verses 14 and 15, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. When we live like this, our church will be known as a place of love, a place of forgiveness, and a place of peace. Tolerating people and forgiving people isn't ignoring sin. Sometimes people say, we have no right to challenge how another Christian is living. You know, it's their life, what right have I got to butt into it? That is not how the Bible sees it. That's not biblical. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Paul isn't telling us to be interfering, self-righteous busybodies. And before we do challenge other people, we do need to take a deep, hard look at our own lives. But for a Christian community, for a church to be authentic, there must be accountability. We are all accountable to each other for our behavior. So write this down. I need to make myself accountable to the rest of my church family. It's about making a choice of saying, I'm going to open my life up to others, and I want you to hold me accountable for my, for my life, for my actions, because that is biblical. James says, confess your sins to one another. I am accountable to you, not just for what I do right now, but for what I'm doing when I'm in Tesco's or when I'm driving a car or when I'm at home. My behavior is your business because we are part of a family. And your behavior is my business. None of us are islands. And if you see a fellow Christian sinning, then you have a duty, not just the right, but a duty to challenge them about their behavior. Paul says to teach and admonish. Admonish is, is challenging and, and, and rebuking somebody. And so often we hide behind phrases like, well, well, who am I to challenge them? Or what business is it of mine? When actually what we're doing is abandoning that person to their sin. But note what Paul says, admonish one another with all wisdom. We mustn't abandon people to their sin, but we must be very wise as to how we deal with them. We don't just blunder in and start accusing people of all sorts of things. But we mustn't abandon people to their sins. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great German pastor, wrote these words, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. This is something that we have to do as elders, often behind the scenes. It's very painful, very hard to do. And sometimes we're, in, we're influenced as a church by the world around us and we think, well, it's not our business. How can we tell this person this is biblical? And it's not about us telling others what to do. When we leave someone in their sinful behavior, that is cruelty. It is not loving. Loving other people is about challenging them and pulling them away from their sin. Let's not hide behind this nonsense of loving everybody as if that somehow means just tolerating things and letting things go on. That's not biblical. When we're loving one another, when we're forgiving, when we're at peace with one another, then it creates a great platform for worship. If there's tension... If there's problems between people in this church, then we're not going to be able to worship God together, are we? But if we choose each day to clothe ourselves with Christ, then not only will we create a healthy church community, but it will also create the right environment for worship. Everything is spiritual. And if I'm not talking to you or you're not talking to me, we can't expect them to walk in here and suddenly switch it on and start worshiping God together. That's not going to happen. And other people might not be aware of that, but God is and the Holy Spirit is grieved by that. 
But as we allow Christ's word, his teachings and his doctrines to get right into our hearts, then this will equip us for worship. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And if we're to worship God authentically, then we need to get to know God. And we do that through his word, the Bible. And the more time we spend with God in his word, the greater our response will be to him and to what he's done for us. So that we come together to worship God with gratitude in our hearts for all that he is and all that he's done for us. And Paul says in verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If we try our hardest to ensure that whatever we do, we do it as if we're doing it in the name of Jesus. Doing things that Jesus would be happy to give his name to, in other words. Doing things that Jesus would be happy to associate himself with. Then we will be clothed with Jesus. And it will have a huge impact on the life of our church, our church family, and our church community. So God is calling us to be an authentic Christian community, a community of individuals who are striving to put to death our old way of living. People who don't have it all sewn up, who are not perfect yet, perfect in God's eyes, but still struggling with the realities of the flesh. Struggling to put on the new life every day. A community of individuals who are clothing ourselves with Christ-like qualities, tolerating others and forgiving others. A community where Christ rules in individuals' lives and his word soaks into our hearts and changes us and moves us to worship. And if we truly live this way, then the world around us will see the difference and that they will see that our community is real community. It will be a foretaste, an example, a forerunner of the heavenly community. And with all due respect to the Secretary of State for Communities, who I'm sure does a great job and I'm sure is a wonderful guy. I don't know him, but I'm sure he is. We won't need his help because we'll have the Lord Jesus as our head and we'll live for him as our head. And surely that has to be our aim, doesn't it? That the world around us will know us as a people who have Jesus as our head, a people who love God and a people who love one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these hugely challenging verses to live as this heavenly community here on earth, to be an authentic Christian community. Help us, O Lord, we pray, to put to death the old way of living, to put to death ourselves and instead to be clothed with Jesus so that we might be different, that our community, our church family here might be different, might be marked by love and grace. Help us to love one another, even when loving one another means that we have to challenge one another. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name.